testing one, two, three, four. <laughs> ah, here we are. Hello. There we go. You guys got me now, right? I'm going to go down to the end of the comments here. You guys give me a thumbs up if you got me. Yay. Okay. All right. I'm going to start again. That took uh, 12 minutes out of our time together. So I'm going to try to abbreviate the beginning. So here we go. You guys ready? Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. I'm going to do that again. We're going to start. We're actually going to cut to this spot, and we're going to do it. Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says, so we can know what to believe. So many times we approach the Bible with what we already believe, trying to find confirmation for that, and that's a surefire way to be wrong. Now, you may be right because you might believe what's right, but how do you know you're right? You want to approach the Bible to find out what to believe. Now, our first question comes from a question that we had last week in our Q&A, and it was about whether or not we will have memories in heaven. And this comes from a passage in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 65, 17, where it says, For behold, new creation, uh, I will create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered nor come to mind. Now let's just take a moment and think about how far we take that. God creates a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things have passed away, and or the former things will not be remembered nor come to mind. Does this mean that in the new heaven and new earth, we won't remember earth at all? Will we remember that there was an earth? Will we remember that we had a former life? Will we remember what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross and took our sins away? Will we remember how God rescued us and saved us? So obviously he's not talking about everything, right? Because we're not gonna get into heaven and just be like, I don't know how I got here, but I sure do like being here. Sure, I'm glad I'm here, but I don't know anybody. I guess I have to meet people and start all over again. Now the context helps us. And last week when I looked at this, I read it and I read following it to try to figure out the context, but what helps is what's in front of it. So I want us to look at verse 16 as well. Here's what it says. I'll put it up on the screen for you. So it says here, and uh, let me get rid of that. Get rid of, um, well, we'll just go down here. We'll get there and we'll read it. Forget the emojis down at the bottom, all right? So uh, here's what it says in Isaiah um, 58, 56, 16 so that he who blessed himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears on the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because, and because they are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now the context of this verse tells us that the former troubles are not going to come to mind. Now, does this mean that we won't remember our troubles or that we won't remember our sin? Or does it mean that the new heaven and the new earth is so glorious and we are in the presence of God, the fullness of joy with the one who created us forever, doing the very thing God has created us to do, that we will not be remembering all the horrible things of old? Maybe you've gone through some really awful things in your life. They will not dominate your thoughts. Maybe they won't even come to mind. It doesn't mean that you don't know who you were or you don't know family or you don't know friends. 
It has to do with those troubles that may cause you now to be, be mentally unstable. It has to do with those former troubles that may have, have helped shape you into who you are, but they will not become to mind. Like at the birth of my child, I didn't remember that at that time when my son was born, I owed, I don't know what it was, $56,000 to the IRS. I had had a business, I had withheld government, I had held employee taxes. And then the manager that I had hired had paid bills with them and not paid, and, and I didn't pay it in my taxes. So I owed it. When my son was born, I didn't remember that I owed $56,000 to the IRS. I was just amazed at my son. And we're gonna be living and not remember the former troubles. We're not gonna be obsessed with them. So that's, I'm quite sure what that means. And um, we know that that people now have memory of things on earth. Jesus told, talked about the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man knew about his brothers. We have souls under the altar. I think it's in Revelation 7 to where they they want justice. So they remember. So we do know that they can remember, but when we get into the new heavens and new earth, it's gonna be so powerful that the former troubles are not going to be brought to mind. Could this mean that God wipes away all our former troubles? Sure, maybe. Maybe we won't remember our problems. Maybe God will wipe away things that would cause us trouble, but we certainly will know who we are. And I don't think that's what it means anyway. I think that we will remember those things We'll just know from the right perspective. We'll know why they happened and what took place. All right. So if you have any follow-up questions on that, I would love to get that from you as well. Now, I also did some research on the Zechariah and the four chariots that went out that we talked about last week that I said, I just don't remember. I just want to say of the book of Zechariah, it's an incredible book. It's like the book of Daniel. It's like the book of Revelation. It talks about Jesus, the branch who would become a king and a priest. And it has seven or uh, six main um, visions that are really weird. One of them are these chariots, which represent war, which go out all around the world and then clear the way for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, which is all pointing to the Messiah and eventually his return. And so we can talk more about that if you want to as well. Uh, thank you guys for being here. Thank you for giving me all the red X's. Um, I know this, that in the future, I will pay a lot more attention to the chat to make sure that things are going well. It seems every so often that I have to turn on and off um, my soundboard, turn on and off my um, eight, was that ATM uh, board, the Blackmagic Design board, um, just periodically. I updated some software today, so who knows if that was a problem. It doesn't really matter. All right, so uh, if you have a question, We'd love to have them. I'd uh, write the word question down, then, then read it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense. And then we'll go ahead and get to your questions. So we have a question. Uh, first question comes from Diana. And Diana says, how or what do we pray for our loved ones to be saved? Thanks, Diana. I appreciate your question. Yeah, one thing that we know is that God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. Peter said, God's not slack concerning his promises, talking about his return, but he desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the reason that God's waiting is so people can get saved. And so when we are praying for the salvation of our loved ones, we know it is something that God desires. 
And so I think about the way that I pray for my loved ones. I pray that God would do whatever he has to do to bring them into the kingdom. The most important thing is their salvation. And so I pray that God would touch their hearts. I pray the word of God would be effective. I pray that God would use me if possible. I pray that God would bring someone into their lives and do something supernatural. Our prayers matter. And having a, a the Bible tells us, he who goes out sowing, farming term, sowing seed, weeping, will rejoice bringing in the sheaves so that we should have a heart for the lost. The Bible says the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And so, Diana, you simply ask God to save them. Ask God to have mercy on them. Ask God to open doors. Ask God to move in their lives because God wants to see them come into the kingdom. And we know how to let them in. We have the keys to the kingdom and praying for the lost, having a heart for the lost is so important. And we would wanna make sure that we are praying that God would speak to them. We also have the Holy Spirit given to us that we can be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and other, other parts of the earth. And I can tell you that um, my family, parts of my family would not listen to me about salvation. They didn't want to talk to me about it. But God brought other people into their lives. I'm talking about some extended family and they ended up getting saved. They ended up giving their lives to Christ as God brought someone else into their lives. So put them in the hands of God, pray that God would work in their lives, that God would speak to them, that they would be strengthened and, um, and, and we believe that God hears our prayers. That doesn't mean everyone's going to get saved because God gives people a free will. Choose you this day whom you will serve. God had to give people a free will because if he didn't, we'd be like robots. We'd be just following him because that's what we were going was supposed to do. But we have a choice that we can make. And the Bible says, whom God foreknew, he predestined. So God knows that you make a commitment to Christ and then he predestines you. All right. So if you have a question, then write the word question out or put a Q in front of it or a question mark in front of it and then write out your question, reread it, make sure it makes sense and then go ahead and submit it and we'll take some time uh, to cover these questions. All right. So we have a question from Carol. Carol says, do you think or believe that the time of a person's death is predetermined by God and that it is unchangeable fixed event? Or do you feel that the schedule can be overridden, say by good medical care? Thank you, Carol, I appreciate that. Um, no, I think that it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. And so as time advanced and, and medical care has grown more and more and gets better and better, and people are living longer today than ever before, and in another 20 or 30 years, that'll probably be true then, that people will be living longer than ever before, maybe in a hundred years, even more. And if the Lord tarries, right? Because it seems like he could come back at any moment, but we don't know when he's gonna return, despite the fact that there are many people saying he could return at any time. So no, I do believe that we have an appointed time of death. And I believe that I've seen that in my life a couple of times, maybe you Carol have seen it in your life a couple of times. There are times when I should have been killed I was in a motorcycle wreck, a severe motorcycle wreck when I was 16 years old and literally walked away from it. And I look back at that and think, 
that was God protecting me. By the way, the motorcycle wreck was, was because I was being dumb. And um, I just, God was not done with me yet. Now, you don't want to tempt the Lord. Remember, Jesus was tempted by Satan, taken upon the pinnacle of the temple, and, and said, throw yourself off, Satan said. And then he quoted scripture. For the Bible says, he will hold you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, Satan misquoted scripture. What the scripture says is he will hold you up in all your ways, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And so Jesus said, yes, but it also says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. So he wasn't going to say, look, God's going to protect. He's got to got a plan for me. I'm going to jump off here and I'm going to live. He said, no, don't tempt God that way. So we can't say, look, my time's appointed. And so I'm going to go, you know, racing down the freeway at 100 miles an hour. The car gets out of control and you roll it. And the next thing you know, you're standing in front of God in heaven. And God says, you moved your appointment up. So this is how I believe that our appointed time can be changed. If I tempt God and then my life is done. Now, God would have known beforehand that I was going to do that. Nevertheless, God had given me a certain amount of days. My death was precious in his eyes. And by, by thinking I could not be killed and, and maybe doing something stupid, then I tempt God and that time is moved up. So no, I think that God knows everything. He knows all about us. He knows the advances that we would make medically and, and where that would be, Carol. And um, so there's no reason for us to think I've, I've lived too long, um, which might be the temptation that people have. I've lived too long. And now, you know, I, I, I had a heart attack and I had a triple bypass or quadruple pi, dry, uh, bypass. And now I'm living on borrowed time and I shouldn't be here. There's no reason to think uh, th these kind of ways. God knows your days. Um, he knows every hair on your head. He knows every tear you've ever cried. The death of his saints is precious in his eyes. And um, we don't want to tempt God, but I can't be taken until that point in time. And who knows, it might be around the corner for me but, or, or for you. But we're living for him today. All right. So thank you, Carol. What a great question. Uh, so Jari says, and Jari, good to see you, by the way. Jari says, does God erase memories of those who die and come back to earth from heaven and hell? Since Paul said in the body or out of the body, why is each near death experience different? Thanks. All right, Jari, thank you. Um, no, I don't think that God erases memories for those who die and come back to the earth. Um, I mean, God can do whatever he wants to do, right? And so if someone, if someone dies and then they're brought back to life and God wants to erase memories of eternity, God could do that. I don't think there's anything in the Bible that would ever help us to understand that. The power of near-death experiences is not what people see when they die. And this is really important because some people who don't know God may see heaven. Some people who know God may see hell, but we don't know what God's doing. If, if, God's, if God's doing something there, the person who didn't know God, maybe they're seeing something for God to tell them, you need to get your life right. And maybe we're seeing torment because God's saying to us, get serious about the people who are headed there. So we can't take the things that happen in a near-death experience and try to put any science to it. 
Now, where the power of it is, is that there are supernatural things that happen in near-death experiences. And I think it's Gary Habermas that has done a lot of work on this. And there's a couple of books that you can get on near-death experiences that are very good. And there are, are people that have died on the operating table and then documented new things they shouldn't know that were taking place out in the waiting room or that were on top of the hospital or that while they were under anesthesia, a doctor came in and they knew that that doctor came in when there was no way they could know it because their heart had stopped. They talk about seeing their body from above it and they describe the things that happen. There's them knowing serial numbers on certain pieces of equipment uh, from a view up above it. And so this tells us something supernatural is going on, that we are not just a, a machine made out of, of, of flesh and that when we die, we go to nothing. Something supernatural is taking place. And if something supernatural is taking place, then you need to make sure that you have things right, that, that we know what that supernatural would be. If supernatural can take place, then why couldn't God send, become a man, rise from the dead, to show us that we could all rise from the dead and live as well. And this is what a lot of atheists will do. They don't believe in any uh, any kind of supernatural. They think that any miracle or anything supernatural can't be explained. Well, then how do you explain these people in these near-death experiences that are seeing things that they shouldn't see? We're not talking about whether they see heaven or hell or darkness or light or nothing or God, we're not talking about that. That's not where we gain value from those because they're so diverse and they're so different. But where we gain value is in the supernatural things that happen in the near-death experiences. All right, Jari, I hope that's helpful. Gary Habermas, if you wanna, and I'm sure his book's available, an audiobook that talks about these things and um, that we can get some, um, that we can get uh, some help in just knowing, hey, we're living in a supernatural world and God's doing things, and God is, if the supernatural world is there, then prophecy becomes more, even more powerful. Because I have had, before we bring in your question cycle, let me just answer this. Um, I've had people tell me that they don't believe in any prophecy because supernatural things can't happen. People I care about who tell me that I don't believe in prophecy, no matter what prophecy you show me, no matter what God told beforehand, doesn't matter. Because there's some amazing prophecies in the Bible that of Psalms 22, there's the prophecy in Daniel about Alexander the Great destroying the city of Tyre. To exact detail, God said, I tell the future, that's his calling card. And so people deny there's anything supernatural. I don't, I, I'm not gonna believe in anything supernatural. That's what they say. So then how, how if you don't gonna believe in anything supernatural, how could God show you he's there? How are you gonna know? Because God reaches into the world. And by the way, a lot of miracles are not supernatural. A lot of miracles are something that happens with a person and they get better and we don't know how that happened or maybe medicine, they get better. But nevertheless, um, that's the power of the near-death experience because it really shows us that the supernatural does take place and it takes this argument of David Hume together that extraordinary events demand extraordinary evidence and so they push away, or his historians who say, it's not the job of history to look at the impossible. And I say to, to historians, 
Yes, it is. If the impossible happened and you have evidence of it, that's history. And you're just being selective if you don't want to look at the amazing prophecies that are in the scriptures that speak of the things that God has done. And that ought to tell you how amazing they are if they're willing to do away with all of them by saying, you're saying that God foretold the future in the Bible. We don't believe miracles can happen. That would be a miracle. So it couldn't have happened. So instead of arguing against the prophecies, they declare that they can't believe them because supernatural things don't happen. And you see, and, and there's a lot of people who are thinking this way now. And that's why near-death experiences help us to understand the supernatural. It's evidence that we can go to and say, look, this person here was out of their bodies. They saw this. It can't be explained. It was documented by this, this, and this. There, there's another book by um, books by Paul Keener. Um, I think it's Paul or um, no, Greg Keener, Dr. Greg Keener uh, on miracles. He's got miracles today. He's got miracles and he documents actual miracles that happen. And that speaks of the supernatural as well. All right. So thank you, Jari, for your question. I appreciate that. Psych man, good to see you. Psych man says, think Jews were ever intended to accept Jesus as the Messiah. I think he can come more as Gentile savior than their Messiah. Is Jesus 2.0 who comes and fulfills the remaining prophecies and the Jews accept him? All right, um, psych man, let me see if I can get to the heart of what you're asking here. Um, yes, those in Israel were, were expected to be saved. Think of Paul, who's Jewish, who got saved afterwards. Think of all of the other Jewish believers who got saved. Think of today, people from Israel, people from the nation of Israel who get saved today. It says blindness in part has happened to them until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. I think that's Romans 11, 25. And so, yeah, there's blindness in part. They rejected their Messiah, but the day is coming when they will receive the Messiah. So yes, I think that they were intended to accept Jesus as their savior. Think about the 120 in the upper room, all of them. All of them were, were Jewish. All of them were from Israel. And um, the whole nation is going to be saved in the end. And no, I don't think it's Jesus 2.0. It's, um, it's Jesus, the Messiah. How can you be any greater than who Jesus is? And he fulfills the remaining prophecies and the nation of Israel accepts him. They all receive him and they accept him. All right, Paul. So thank you very much for your question. Um, but I do believe that, no, Jesus did die for the Jews and the Gentiles. In Psalms 22, where you have a, a first person account of a crucifixion and it's Jesus. And he's wondering, why is this happening to me? He says, you've answered me like a third of the way through the Psalm. You've answered me. And then he talks about his brethren that he's dying for the sins of the brethren, then dying for the sins of the Gentiles, then dying for the sins of people who have not yet been created, that God had finished it. So yeah, Jesus's death is sufficient once and for all. Um, they were, they Jesus came unto his own, his own did not receive him. And for that reason, blindness in part has happened to them. But remember that the devil is blinding the eyes of those who don't believe as well. 
So even Gentiles who don't believe are being blinded as well. And we need to pray that they would be given clarity. We had the question earlier, how do I pray for someone to receive the Lord, to get saved? Well, one of them is to pray that the enemy would be bound and no longer be able to blind their eyes. All right, so thank you, Psych Man. I really do appreciate that. It is good to see you guys here. If you have a question, then you can write the word question out, write your question, and um, then go ahead and submit it. Reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense. If you have a reference, give us the reference. We'll take time to look that up. So we have a question from Albert. Albert says, hello, Pastor. Is Israel a type of Jesus? I see evidence of this when God says, out of Egypt, I will call my son. And the Bible says, through the nation of Israel, salvation will come to the world. Um, Let me think of that. Is Israel a type of Jesus? Um, Let me answer this in a couple of different ways, Albert. Um, A lot of people that are in Israel today believe that Israel in the nation itself is the Messiah, that they came to bless all nations. And if you consider the people of Israel, they are have been a huge blessing to the world. There have been more noble prizes won from by people from Israel. Uh, there are, I mean, we could just go on and on and talk about all of the people who were Jewish who blessed the world, and that is true. But the main blessing of the nation of Israel is that the Messiah was going to come through them. And if Israel were a type of Jesus, they sure do make a bad type. Because from the time they are chosen and created, they cause problems. Jacob, you had Abraham that had Isaac, that had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, and they sold their brother into slavery, wanted to kill him. That certainly doesn't sound like a type of Jesus to me. Soon as they left Israel, Egypt, they made a golden cow, danced around it and worshiped it. That's not a type of Jesus at all. That's a type of, and and then, then the account goes on. Every person has a major failure in Israel. David had a major failure. You think that he might be the Messiah figure, but he has a major failure. And every person that you go through as you make your way through the Bible of people like Uzziah that look like they're good have a major failure. He went in and tried to sacrifice in the temple and he got leprosy. And Uzziah was a good king. There, the Bible tells us, and this is one of the reasons that we know the children of Israel didn't write the Old Testament in Babylon in order to give a claim for the land. And it, and it didn't really happen. Because when people write their history, they don't write negative things about the people in the past. But the Bible tells us the truth about people. And I think you and I, Albert, could probably be happy that scripture is not still being written today because we wouldn't want to find ourselves in scripture because God is just honest about it all. He didn't, he wasn't in, in the business of glorifying people, but showing how real genuine sinners can have a right relationship with God even when they do some horrible and awful things. So I know I do not believe that Israel is a type of Jesus. So you say a couple of things. I see evidence of this when God says, out of Egypt, I will call my son. 
So yeah, there is that connection. Um, I don't know if we want to call it a dual fulfillment. This is the way that prophecy often works. There's an event that happens and then God has a, a, a better fulfillment for it or a more complete fulfillment for it. So God did call his son out of Egypt. Egypt was as collective, they were a child of God. And even though they themselves as individuals were never thought to be a child of God. And then um, Jesus is called out of Egypt and he's the fulfillment of that particular passage. And we know that because the Bible said that. But I don't think that that means that Israel is a type of Jesus. I think it means Israel was God's son and God called his literal son out of Egypt as well. And then uh, through the Bible says that through the nation of Israel, um, salvation will come to the world. How does that salvation come to the world, Albert? It comes by a promise of a Messiah given to Abraham. And in Galatians, Paul says, it doesn't say seed as in seeds as in many, but it says seed as in one that through your descendant, all the nations shall be blessed. So all the nations are blessed because they, the Messiah came through them. And so how many billions of people in history have, have received eternity because of the Messiah that came through Israel? And so Israel is blessed. And, and God did say, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. So God has done special things for the nation of Israel because they were going to be the people to bring the Messiah into the world. And that's the blessing that comes out of it. All right, Albert, if you have any more questions on that, um, I'd love a follow-up question on it. All right. So um, we have another question from Fact Check These Hands. Fact Check These Hands, good to see you. Um, what should my response be to my coworkers when they mock my Christian beliefs? Don't want to get fired but also want to express my love for Jesus. All right, well, good. Yeah, I can understand you not wanting to get fired. Fact check these hands. Um, here's what I think. What did Jesus say? When men ridicule you, say all kinds of evil against you, for my name's sake, rejoice. This is an opportunity that you think about it, we don't all get and we don't all get for a long time. Maybe you were made fun of when you were in college. Maybe, you know, some professors mocked you for being a Christian. And people say, well, I don't know what to do. Or there's a difficulty going on with your job because someone's mocking you. Now, I, I don't think that we are supposed to just take persecution. And if we can get out of it, that we shouldn't get out of it. But I think that we should look back on the persecution we have received and rejoice. And I'll explain to you what I mean. So, um, what should my response be to coworkers that mock my Christian beliefs? No, they they hated Jesus first, and that they hate you because of Christ inside of you, and so they are mocking those. That doesn't mean that you don't go to your boss. It doesn't mean um, that you when Christians were being persecuted in the first century, it, they they left the cities and they went to other cities. And then Paul pursued them to other cities. So they didn't just stay in the persecution. They were to thank God and rejoice for it, but it didn't mean that they were just supposed to stay there no matter what. And so it might be that if the persecution is so bad that you would get another job. It might be that you go to your boss and tell your boss 
Um, you say, I don't want to get fired. I'm not sure how you would get fired for the coworkers mocking you, but I guess that's possible. I'm just don't quite understand all of your question there. And, um, but also I want to express the love of Jesus. Yes, you definitely do. And, and, and Jesus again, gave us the direction and here's an opportunity for you. And it is an opportunity. When we face difficulties and hard times, it's an opportunity for us to walk with Christ through the middle of those things, that our suffering would be a completion of his suffering, as Paul said. And so you're being persecuted at work. Pray for them. Pray for those that hate you and those who, who spitefully use you. It doesn't mean you can't try to avoid the persecution. And I think this is a mistake that a lot of people end up making. They think that they have to put up with the persecution no matter what. A strange cup, I know. All right, so thank you. Fact check these hands again. Um, love to have a follow-up question on that if you have other things about that. Uh, Empress Kimberly, thanks. Uh, good to see you, Kimberly. Says, hi, Pastor. I've been working on doing things with pure motives, like you said. Are you sure this is possible, this side of heaven? Um, good question, Kimberly. Uh, well, the Bible says, if anyone says they don't have sin, they're a liar. The Bible says that our spirit struggles against our flesh and our flesh struggles against the spirit. So we don't do the things that we want. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing everything we can do to have the right motives behind what we do. I want to do what I do with the right motives. I don't want to do it for the wrong motives. I'd rather not do it for the wrong motives doesn't mean I always have the right motives. It means I'm trying. It means I have that heart and the desire. And God knows these things. God knows these things about, about me. God knows these things about you. So yeah, it, it, we have the sin nature. The, it's, it's, it, we're struggling with it. And all it means is that you keep short accounts with God. So that when you do blow it and you realize you did something with the wrong motive and God reveals it. You know, the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my ways. Try me know my heart, see if there's any wickedness in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so you pray that God would search your heart. You pray that God would be renewing your inner woman day by day. I'd be praying that God would renew my inner man day by day, although the outward is perishing. And one day we know that we will be perfected. But today we walk in grace. And this is really important because there's no one who's without sin. There's no one who's not walking in grace. We are prone like sheep, the Bible says, to go astray. And that's unfortunate. I wish it wasn't that way, but it is. So keep it up, Kimberly. You're, you're doing what's right by working on doing with things with a pure motive. You want it to be out of a pure motive why you do what you do. You wanna be able to, to, to help people, to bless people, to do it for God, to have the right heart and the right mind when you do them. But I do love your question and I understand your struggle. And I think we all understand your struggle uh, because we have had them. Uh, we've had them, all right? So thank you very much for your question. Uh, if you have a question today, then write the word question or a Q or a question mark in front of it so I can identify it in the chat. And, um, and then we'll bring your question in and answer it. We have a follow-up by Jari. And Jari says, um, follow-up, why do some people have bare death 
near near death experiences and others don't. I don't know why people have bare death experiences, um, Jari. I just don't understand it. No, why does somebody have near death experiences and others don't? Um, and and that's something I have no clue on. Um, I don't know. I don't know that there's a near death experience. No, maybe there are in the Bible. I mean, Paul died and then went to heaven and saw things that were illegal for him to express. It quite, it's quite literally says, um, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of like, why do some people suffer some disease and other people don't? We don't know. God allows them to happen. I think the purpose of near-death experiences is like we said, for God to show us that there are supernatural things that are happening. That's the purpose of prophecy in the Bible as well. And that's God's calling card. That's really the evidence. And uh, I, I consider both of those to be supernatural. And as I said, so much so that the critic has to go, uh, I, won't, I won't believe anything supernatural. So if you're telling me that's a prophecy, then God, no, no one could have known but God, then I can't believe it. And to that, it's like you're, you're writing off a way that God could show you whether or not he's real. If you really want to know what the truth is, then shouldn't you be open to everything, everything that's out there? All right, so thank you for that. Um, not sure why some have near-death experiences and others don't. I'm not sure why anything happens to one person and doesn't happen to other people. Um, I wish I didn't know the answers to that because a lot of people, times people say, why? Why did this happen to me? You might even think that when something good happens to you. Why has this happened to me? So if you're here with us for the first time today, Thank you for being here. My name is Robert Furrow. I'm a pastor in Tucson, Arizona. I um, pastor Calvary Tucson, have done that since 1985. So this October will be 37 years. Is that right? 37 years um, that I've been pastoring there. I'm hoping to make 50. That's really my, my desire. Um, but our heart here in this Q&A is just to look at Scripture, through look at questions through the lens of Scripture. And if you have a question, then you can write the question down, then you can rewrite, read it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit your question. Now, I don't know if I forgot, if I missed any questions above. I'm at the end of the comment section and there are no more questions. Um, so we may just wrap things up here. Um, so uh, yeah, Jari's just fire, Jari's firing out questions. Um, so if, uh, if I missed a question, Keith or Daniel, can you let me know? Did I miss one as I was going down through those? I know we had a few. Um, in fact, I'm just going to go back up to the top again. And I'll look, at, uh, I'll look there in the beginning because we had a false start today. Keith will um, hopefully be able to cut out that first section and uh, then kind of come in. Yeah, I don't see any questions before I started getting to questions here. All right, well, it's been good um, being with you guys today, looking at scripture to see what it says about how we're supposed to live and how we can deal with the things that are going on in our lives. I wanna remind you that our questions could be questions about things that we face as well that may be nuanced. Sometimes when you ask, when questions are asked in a real general way, it's hard to answer them more specifically, but when they're put in the context of a, of a problem or a difficulty, why people would have a, um, a 
a question, then it becomes a little bit more, you can apply it a little bit better. And um, that's really what we're hoping to do as we take time here. All right, so I'm gonna look down all the way at the bottom again, see if there's any more questions. And there isn't, so it's good to see you guys. Good to spend this time with you. Uh, we have a service in an hour. It is communion. We are looking at uh, getting communion right, making sure that we've got things um, right when we take communion. And this is really, really important. And um, we are going to be looking at seven, we're going to be looking at seven things that we need to know about communion. And I want to go ahead and uh, let me see if I can pull up my notes here on my phone. I want to give you those seven things that we need to know about communion. And you may want to make sure that uh, you have your communion. If you're going to, if you're not going to come to church tonight, then get your communion stuff ready. Get the fruit of the vine and some bread and get ready and we'll lead you in communion. But let me just give you these seven things here that will be in the service tonight that, will, that we must get right about communion. Number one, let me put this right here. Number one, it is a memorial meal. That's really important for us to understand that, that it was a memorial meal that the memorial meal was given. So we are going to remember him. We're going to remember the cross. We're going to remember the body. We're going to remember the blood. It is for us to remember so that we don't forget, so that we don't have other things that people might think are as important as communion, that we would not do those things thinking that it is as important as communion is. And um, yeah, I got, uh, I got things pulled up on my computer here, make it a little bit easier. All right, so the, the second is that this is a symbolic meal. It is not a literal meal. And I don't want to talk tonight a lot about transubstantiation, but it's not the literal body of Jesus. It's not the literal blood of Jesus. The, the Jews were forbidden from drinking blood, from drinking blood, from eating blood at all. They're vampires. They were, they weren't, God didn't want them to be vampires and drink blood um, for, from eating blood. And they would have objected to it. Besides that, the memorial meal of the Passover spoke symbolically of all of the things that had happened. And so Jesus takes communion and makes it symbolic. So the cup, the fruit of the vine is symbolic of his blood. The bread is symbolic of his body. It is a symbolic meal. The third is it's a covenant cup. Jesus said, this is the cup of my blood shed for you. The, the, uh, the cup of the new covenant that is shed for you. So it's the cup of the new covenant. You and I are not under the law, but we are now in Christ and, and, and under the covenant of grace. He said, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. The fourth thing is that the bread of his body was broken for us. This is my body, the bread is my body broken for you. So he became a replacement for us. He took our place on the cross. The fifth is that we are to examine ourselves. The Corinthians were taking communion in an unworthy manner and they were to examine themselves and make sure that things are right before you take it. And before you ever take communion, stop and examine yourself. Number three, don't take it in an unworthy manner, make sure that things are right in your life when you take communion. And finally, we are preparing or we are proclaiming his death until he comes. When we take communion, people are learning more and more about his death. 
and proclaiming his death until he comes. So those are the seven things that we'll be talking about tonight um, in communion. We'd love to have you join us. Uh, and we're going to be looking at Luke um, 22, chapter 22, verses 14 through 23, and First Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul gives communion. And we're going to make sure, we want to make sure that we get communion, right? Because it's so important. All right. So God bless you guys. It's good to see you. Good to be here with you. Love you. Stay close to Jesus. Um, and we will see you Wednesday night uh, for our next Q&A or in between if you have a service or maybe, you know, here, there, in the air, as they say. If Jesus comes back, we'll see you up in heaven where we will know each other. All right. So God bless you guys. Love you. I'm out. We will see you later on.